Thank you for listening to the On The Rise podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. The music composition and vocals is done by Graham Best. Your host, of course, is the property shark, Mr. John Lee. Have a wonderful day, and we will, of course, see you next time on our way to the top. Cheers. What's up, everyone? John Lee here, also known as the Property Shark, and welcome back to another episode of the On the Rise podcast. Today we have a very special guest. He is the regional manager of Alaire Homes in the Lower Mainland. We have David Babakayev with us today. Thank you so much, David, for being on our podcast. Hi, John. My pleasure. Um, so, David, uh, if I can kindly ask you to give our listeners, a, a quick introduction about yourself. Uh, sure. Well, as you said, I'm a regional manager for and developer for the Lower Mainland for Allaire Homes, which is an international franchise in custom home building and renovations. I'm also uh, a, uh, a husband and a grandfather uh, and have been in this business in home building for over 20 years uh, previous to that some entrepreneurial uh, events in, in other industries, building other companies. That's amazing, David. Um, and I, I kind of wanted to, to start off the conversation by, by asking you, you know, how, how your entrepreneurial journey started, you know, was it always in you um, when you were growing up? Did you sell and flip items um, at school? Was it kind of um, in your family? Did you see your parents? Were they entrepreneurs and you saw them running a business? Where did the spark of entrepreneurship come from? I'm not sure where it came from. I, I grew up in a very rural area in uh, South Central British Columbia. Uh, and uh, the advice that I got growing up was to get a good job uh, or stay working at the sawmill, which was my part-time job, you know, that's out of school. Uh, but a few years after being married and having our, our children, I, I, it just wasn't enough and you could sort of pour, I could just see the, okay, work here, retire, and just, I don't know, it didn't seem like a rewarding enough for me. So we, um, with my wife agreed though, I'm gonna re- quit the job that I had and we're just gonna go entrepreneur, which I found out was a lot harder than I sounded like initially. Um, but that's how it started. There was just a drive to, to to be more, achieve more, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so it wasn't, my father-in-law was actually an old time builder, you know, back in the day they would uh, get the neighbors together and take the foundation, part of the concrete made by hand and build the whole thing, go back to the shop and build the cabinets and go install them. All, all one guy would do the whole thing. Whereas these days, of course, it's all separated into specialties and production more. Um, so there was, I guess it's been around, and my uncle was also a builder like that. So it's been around my life, but it wasn't anything I aspired to in my early days at all. Um, <laughs> it just um, kind of just started following opportunities, uh, many of which didn't work out. My kids would make fun of me where I had a portfolio of, I mean, like a Rolodex of business cards of all these, uh, you know, 20 or 30 efforts to try build a company that, that never got off the ground. Um, but eventually a few did. <laughs> that's amazing David and um, 
I'm curious to hear, you know, you started a couple of ventures, but what was kind of the first venture that you got into? Um, and how did you come across that idea or yeah, for, for that business? Yeah. Well, I got into a number of ventures. Um, I'd say probably the, one of the more successful ones was in, in the in Northern British Columbia where ended up co-owning a log yard up in uh, Northern British Columbia that, that hauled around 5,000 rail cars of logs a year down to the um, OSB mills to make OSB or plywood in Southern British Columbia. And that really just came from, from need, you know, like in between uh, companies and making, making money to pay the, pay the rent or the mortgage, uh, just looking at opportunities. And this was just one where I saw an innocuous little ad from one of the local uh, plywood mills looking for a particular kind of log to make plywood from and just, you know, buying it from local people that had those kind of trees in their back 40 acres kind of thing. Um, so I started to, but I seemed like there was some sort of opportunity there. So I started to learn about what kind of logs were they, where did they typically grow? So a little bit of research just kind of drove around uh, the area where I lived in the interior. Uh, and ask questions and realize and soon learn that those kind of trees really grow really well and in, 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 in large volumes in northern British Columbia, about like four hours north of uh, Prince George, wow. which was way too far to haul it down to the southern British Columbia where, where we live. Um, so then just following that path, you go, well, how, if it's going to work, how, how, how can you move them? Well, you got to use a train. So I called the BC Rail at the time and uh, inquired about leasing some rail cars to do that with and what would that take and how would, you know, all these kind of things. And they would uh, eventually refer me to a fellow up in that area that was active in the logging community. So I called him, his name was Jim. I called him and started having a conversation about you know, can we do this? Because he didn't perceive how we could do such a long haul kind of thing. Um, but we did. We uh, we got together. We liked each other, and uh, we the first step was that on a handshake, then we went and made an agreement with one of the local um, property owners up in that area that has a thousand acres or something like that with huge amounts of this timber on it. So we made a, a tentative or an independent contract with him to 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 buy a bunch of that timber. Then we took that contract and we took it to the primary sawmill, I mean, uh, OSB mill, and made a contract with them to buy it. And of course, we don't have any money into this at this point, just two contracts on each side and no no deal. Then we went to the, um, the rail, the BC rail, and made a contract to lease an entire, there's one place you could actually pull the trains off to the side and load them up. So we actually leased that whole area from BC Rail to do that to do that with, um, and then the next step was went and and uh, bought a used loader to load the logs with on uh, on a contract with the who was selling it that they would get paid each month uh, from the revenues that we would we would get off of this contract and wrote a contract for that. So we started the business with no money down basically and it ended up doing, you know, $5 million a year immediately. Um, so that was, that was just, you know, like wiring it together 
uh, but kind of following the clues, I guess I would say, is from one thing leads to another, and well, how do you solve that one thing? And it wasn't like um, that whole vision was there at the beginning. So I think from an entrepreneur point of view, it's really just what you can see and what you can do. And if it doesn't work, hopefully it leads to the clues to the next step. Um, and if it doesn't, well, that's kind of where it ends. But in this case, it kept going till it, till it uh, succeeded getting running and there was a nice uh, multi-year run with that operation. That was the first one. So you, you started off with a bang and, and your first business that, that you launched off, you kind of connected the dots and, and... Well, I wouldn't say it was the first, a bang off the first one, but that was maybe the uh, 20th one, but it just happened to be the one that, that uh, broke into the multi-million dollars and you know, made some real money instead of uh, just a little bit. Wow, and um, when you were kind of starting businesses, uh, from your experience, what is kind of the, the biggest takeaway that, that you can get from, you know, starting, you said this, you started 20 or so businesses prior to this one really taking off um, and, and generating, you know, millions in revenue annually. Um, kind of what were, what was probably the, the biggest lesson that you took away from all your other ventures along the way? Oh, good question. I don't know. I, I think, um, well, the, I don't know if it's really a takeaway, but more like an observation, John, where uh, tenacity sure has to be there for an entrepreneur. I think the definition of an entrepreneur, entrepreneur, unless you have some really good mentoring and some good training to start with before you, you, know, you, you get in there, there's going to be mistakes, there's going to be losses, there's going to be challenges that you don't know what they are until you get in the middle of it. Um, so there's a quick education. So I think some observations was that tenacity needs to be part of the makeup uh, and plan B's need to be in place where if it doesn't work out and there's a failure, how do you uh, pick up? How do you look after things in your family in the meantime? Uh, and I think one of the lessons looking back was that when I started, I didn't know anything about financials or, or good money management. So it was um, that that really needs to be, if you don't know it already, that would that would be something to learn to prioritize uh to to learn and apply in business right and uh, in terms of the the financial knowledge and the entrepreneurial knowledge um did you have any mentors along the way that kind of guided you in the right direction or um how did you get this knowledge did you just try to figure it out as you went along through trial and error yeah, no, I, I think uh, mentors, I had to reach to uh, that back in that day, uh, which was pre-internet, uh, was through books uh, and courses and things like that, right? So it wasn't really anybody that that was personal and close, but there was, there was a little bit of help from, you know, from my lawyer who was older and kind of befriended me and, and shared a few things with him that he's done successfully and a couple of people like that, but it's really, really the... Um, you know, back when even Tony Robbins was getting going, just taking his courses and just learning some better, stronger, um, I guess, methods of, of, of working or of just understanding life and business and working through them. And then, and then the, trying to apply it really. But at the end of the day, it was pretty simple. You need to sell a lot of something that was, that didn't cost a lot 
and do a lot of volume or maybe do a smaller amount of volume with something that costs a lot. Um, like later on, one of the companies we did, the, you know, each thing we sold was around $5 million wow. uh, or five or $6 million a piece. So, but we didn't sell a lot of them, you know, relative to other things. But um, I think it's just, it's just getting on the perspective. Like uh, I think part of it, looking back, John, now that you have me looking at that is going, um, is, is just recognizing that I'm always building a business versus just working or making money. You know, like you know, that perspective of developing a business that can run independently or that can be sold, uh, I think really helps form how, how it's approached and the, the things that need to get done that we need to learn or bring in people that, that are experts in those categories that, that the business requires. But that only perspective comes when it's sort of viewed as a separate from ourselves and not our baby, but our com you know a company building a, a cash flow or an asset. Love it, David. Um, and uh, I'm curious to, to, to hear um, out of all the ventures that you dabbled in, um, some took off, some didn't really take off, some you know got you um, a lot of millions of revenue, dollars of revenue annually. Um, what would you say would be the, the most memorable venture that, that you ever took part in? The one that like stood out the most, like, ah. Uh, well, I'd say, I'd say two. One, one is what I'm doing right now uh, at Lair Homes. And the other is in the early 90s, started a company that was in, working in a particular niche of, of, um, of alternate energy. Before before alternate energy was cool, uh, that was that was that was pretty fun and tremendous. But um, uh, and that that actually led to starting the construction my construction career, construction builder career as well, um, indirectly. But so those two. So um, that first one, that alternate energy company, was really uh, an, an outcome of uh, technology that we came across in. Uh, one of the other businesses we were doing, which was managing and, and uh, the debris that sawmills and pulp mills made through British Columbia and Manitoba, and, uh, where that was actually a really big problem because they'd have these huge piles that would self-combust. And so we would take, you know, up to about six months sometimes to, to get rid of those piles. And you did it by burning it without, without and meeting the emission standards. But that led to some technology awareness for us where, where uh, it was a form of gasifying or, or just dealing with the debris in a way that, that got the maximum energy out of it and way exceeded the EPA standards for emissions. But that extra energy allowed us to do things like place them in industrial settings where it, that energy offset the need for, for the purchase of natural gas to heat the building or it offset um, even the potential for electrical power by using it uh, to either generate steam or just direct hot air, like through an air, like through a jet turbine, kind of modified jet turbine to make electricity. So that was so we started that company, and that was a that was straight R and D that was supported by our other companies. So uh, the first, I guess, eighteen months was was a pretty big cash burn. Straight R and D, lots of engineers and PhDs and whatnot uh, working for us. And actually interesting just for 
an entrepreneurial point of view at that point my kids were were early, just about teenagers but just kind of around that age and the um i remember one of them coming to me and going well um because uh, we were hiring uh guys that were engineers and, and smarter than me in those areas so it was really interesting for for my son to go well how how come um how come they're how come they're how i forget exactly what but some, something like how come they're working for you <laughs> um and and it was a good it was a good um reminder that when you create value for everybody including those people right Every, everybody brings together where where their interests and talents are and, and work for kind of a common cause um and and we're just kind of coordinating it as business owners but anyway that that business ended up um with international sales in the united states and australia um where uh you know install selling and installing these uh alternate energy special machineries in industrial settings um and that went to um interestingly brought in some for some additional cash and brought in some people that were sort of positioning the company to get publicly listed in, in Canada in Toronto uh, and first lesson in in sort of growing a company quickly and doing that I found myself actually pushed you know losing control of the company being pushed out and then eventually losing the, the technology which got broken up and dispersed into other companies um, so that was that was a that was a shock and a lesson of, um, of being a bit naive in terms of just expecting or trusting everybody involved. And did that you said this uh, kind of this the technology with um, the alternative energy that led you to start Alair Homes? Was that any direct? No, not not quite not Alair Homes, but the first part of it. It's it. Uh, as we as that happened, then it was like time to take some time off. I took a year off from working and stuff, and just kind of regroup. But um, with that with that previous work, I was traveling quite a bit and stuff. So we were wanting to talk, you know, just to what my wife wanted me to do something that would keep me at home and we'd be around together. And we had pre, during this period, we had built a couple of homes for ourselves, designed and built them ourselves um, because we had the skill and interest. And my wife was like designing. So we had this bright idea was, why don't we just start a construction company and, and um, she'll design the homes and I'll build them and we'll just have sort of an easy going life. So that's where we started. That was the idea of it. Uh, and the reason for it is just to be do something together instead of me being away all the time. So that was, uh, that was how that started. And actually, I, where we lived, one of the neighbors around the corner had a, that knew us had a lot, an empty lot as well backing on a golf course. So we just made a deal with them that we would, they provide the lot, we would build a house on it, um, and then we'd sell it and they'd get their lot, their the agreed price for the lot and a little bit more from the house sale and letting us do that. Um, so that's how we started that and finance, once we had that deal together, financed the, uh, the build of the house and did the whole thing again with no money down um, by putting those two pieces together. And that was the very first house that we kind of started as uh, that started our you know house building um, venture quite some couple of decades ago now. That's amazing. And uh, David, before we kind of dive into um, being a builder, I have a lot of questions for you in that in your expertise <laughs> there. Um, I, I'm just curious to see you know when you kind of started this company, grew it so fast, and you eventually got pushed out. 
Uh, I'm assuming that was a somewhat low point in your life. Um, how, how did you get out of that to be able to, to kind of transition into doing something else? Um, like mentally, how, how did you get yourself out of that, that rut? Right. Cause it is, a, a, I would say like, if you built a company that's your baby, it's almost like someone just stole it from you almost. And you felt betrayed in some sorts there, there could be some negative emotions there, but how are you able to come out of that? Um, and use it as as fuel to 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 jump into uh, build, building. Yeah, good question. I don't know that I really know the answer to that succinctly, but it's you're right. There's there's betrayal and hurt and and um, you know feeling bad about it. Uh, part of it, I think, is just have in in my case anyway, just just having a good relationship at home uh, and. Just, ha just having, I guess, developed the forward-looking point of view because that's already done. So the knowledge, you know, choices, wallow in the hurt um, and bring that forward into everything in my life now, which would be starting to view everything in that sort of negative pattern, um, or just just move forward knowing. I think the well, I think what it is is that we develop by being entrepreneurial and sort of serial entrepreneurial kind of develop a sense of security around uh, um, my ability versus the outside thing. So the sense of security and all that kind of thing wasn't the company or the things that was really just in myself um, that was just honed over, over the years being entrepreneurial. So I think that came into play really and just go, okay, well, now what? And do we continue in this field or something else? And we had a different why, which was, you know, relationship-based and just spending more time together. Um, and it's sort of like plan B. I don't know that it was always, okay, this is going to be the career the rest of our lives. It was more like, okay, this is a, this sounds like a good plan B. <laughs> while, uh, while I explore other great, amazing, sexy, you know, businesses, uh, we'll just build some houses and, you know, just, and, and somewhere along the line, I remember laughing about it because, like a, a long time later, it was like, holy smokes, when did plan B become plan A? Because I totally forgot about those other plan A's and now this is all, you know, this is where everything, the whole focus is. So I think that was, um, I don't know, a humorous observation. Absolutely, David. And uh, you, you made the switch over when, when you hit 30. Do you think that, that was at the age where you kind of felt like you had to kind of make the switch to, 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 to be more around because you were traveling a lot prior to that for your other business ventures. With well, age? no, I, well, yeah, I mean, maybe, no, it wasn't, it was, it was in the late thirties, but it wasn't so much uh, an age driven or thing, but it was more like if that business ha had succeeded and gone forward and continued to grow and I was continuing to be part of it on the, whether as CEO or other executive, whatever chairman, I would have, that, that's that's where I'd be today probably in, in some field that's followed through and spent, spun off that career. So it wasn't so much that it was that, 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 that door got closed. So then another door, you know, has to open. So it just happened to be this, but I think it was just an easy, because we had sort of a comfort level with it over the years with, from uh, like I said earlier, my uncle and father-in-law were in that, they weren't really in the business. They were just carpenters that built houses. You know, they're just working for themselves kind of thing. But it was still the smell of sawdust and the, you know, the banging of nails that that whole thing was kind of, you know, comfortable or 
part of our history for both my wife and I. So it was just like a, and we had designed and built our own homes, which we enjoyed, but it was for ourselves. So that was kind of easy. Um, but we were good at it and designed them well and that kind of thing. So it seemed like a easy plan B for that checked off those boxes as well as keeping it, you know, just having me at home and doing stuff together and with our kids. So that, that was it. Yeah. That, that's wonderful, David. So always have a plan B um, just in case you never know. Um, and your plan B might even become your plan A one day, you know, just given the circumstances. And I think it's important that people realize that there is an abundance of opportunity out there. And if one door closes, there's going to be another one that will open. Um, but you just have to be observant of where you're at and your circumstances to be able to see those opportunities. Um, so that's amazing, David, what you've been, been able to do and kind of take me through what are some of the challenges of uh, building a custom home? I've been building custom homes for a long time for a, for a lot of people. And I've also been building spec homes, but on the custom home, the chal the, there's a number of challenges. Um, and very little of them are actually structural, like construction wise. The challenges are around managing good expectations with our with the people that want the house built how are you communicating the um the con the information and managing things uh but what i've come to realize over the years is there's actually in our industry there's actually built-in flaws in the pricing models and that that create risk for the clients and for ourselves so like i don't know like john you're you're a, a realtor when you're not doing your iPods and, and it's, you know, so like, I think you, you might have some examples of, of, of clients and what their concerns or worries might be or stories that they've heard, you know, when people, other people building houses or doing renovations and things going wrong. And those, those, uh, you can share if you like, <laughs> um, but those, those, that feeling and those stories, everybody resonates with because they happen and they don't happen because, most builders are are bad or anybody intends a bad outcome. They happen because the systems and processes aren't in place to mitigate the risk, identify and manage the risks involved. Mm. Because a lot of builders or almost all builders are small business guys running their small businesses. They just happen to be good builders. That doesn't mean they understand the business side of it to mitigate, identify and mitigate these risks or even put the processes or systems in place to do that. Um, as well as the two pricing models out there are either fixed price or cost plus. Um, guaranteed fixed prices only has three possible outcomes that worked out well for, uh, the, 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 for both parties and, and that happens, everybody's happy. Or the builder made way more profit than he planned for, but he keeps it so it's not really fair to the client. Or even actually one of the worst cases is that the builder is actually losing money on building that house at a fixed price. Now he's cutting corners and trying to, you know, creating stress, trying to bring, claw back some of that money, or even worse, just did it three or four times at the same time with several houses and goes out of business. And all those things have happened. And uh, I used to use that model as well, so I know all that stuff firsthand. And same with cost plus, that sounds like reasonable, but it becomes an open checkbook once you get started, if you don't have other things in place. So through long, hard experience, um, you know, we've developed an, an uh, a hybrid and an alternate you call it client control but it's just another it's it's another um, um, pricing model that 
starts to eliminate those risks. So I'd say that the, um, the challenges in custom home building is really more around how all of that is managed in terms of protecting the finances of our clients, uh, making sure they understand what it is clearly and, and then giving them a, an easy way to really have full transparency and access to where their money is going. I, John, I think most of your clients and I know all of ours, they, they want a home. They don't want to be a builder and deal with all that stuff, but they want to know where the money is going. Yeah. And they just don't want to know, okay, well, 100 grand for this and 100 grand for that. That's not helpful. They need to have the disclosure going, okay, well, this, you know, this thing that I want, whatever it is, let's call the soaker tub, it is, you know, $3,900. Okay. So here's, here's the tub that you saw. Here's, here's the quote with our discount that we get as a builder. So um, there it is. If you want it and that's worth it to you in your life, awesome. And then you press the button and say, approve that. I want that. Or you go, hey, I don't, that's way too much money for that. I, that's not worth it to me. Let's buy a $500 tub. So uh, having a system that allows people to have that kind of transparency and sort of engagement to, to have control over where the money's going when they're building it um, or before they start actually just planning it all out gives really security um, and avoids a lot of like 80% of the problems that happen during custom building. Um, the other 20% is just out of the competency and experience of the builder. And there are lots of, you know, out of the, I think in the lower mainland, there's, you can go to BC housing and on their site, they, they tell you how many builders there is, but there's over 5,200 builders in the lower mainland registered with the government to build houses for other people. So that's a lot. So you can imagine that um, out of that group, there's, there's actually a lot, in my opinion, um, several hundred that are really great builders. Uh, there's several hundred that are really bad builders and there's a, most of them in, are just in between and mediocre at a lot of things, you know, that, and that's kind of how it stacks up. I think that's probably typical in almost any industry actually, but it's no different here. Um, so it's not about, it's not about, uh, it's partially about the quality of the build, the, the building science, the education that the builders have, the teams that they've been able to put together, the quality of the trades and, you know, all those kind of things. Yes, but that's, but that's actually the smaller part of where all the challenges come up and the disappointments for our clients. Does that make sense? I rambled a bit there. Yeah, yeah, no, that, that makes 100% sense. Um, again, I think a main point that you figured out is you found a way to educate and be transparent about the options that a client has and you were able to establish a, a, a better pricing model. That's a one-win scenario for both the builder and the clients. Um, so I think that's really important, what you've been able to do. Um, I'm curious to, to see, because you mentioned there's, there's, you mentioned spec home. So what's the difference between a spec home and a custom home? A spec home is uh, where, for instance, I would used to years ago, I would build a, a, a house, I buy a lot, build a house, finish it, Put it for sale sign on front of it and sell it so that's called a spec home so we're building on speculation that we're going to be able to sell it later <clears throat> almost everybody is familiar with that in one degree or another in the lower mainland because the last decade as prices were increasing almost anybody could be a spec developer because mm -hmm. the prices were moving forward so you can make lots of mistakes and still make some money on the end right but as soon as that market cools off then everybody that's borrowed money to do that with or leverage themselves in some way, all of a sudden it has a loss they have to absorb 
and in some cases it is pretty substantial, um, whether you're a developer or just an independent person, you know, doing that. So spec building is, is exactly what I just described. Custom home building is where, uh, say you and I, John, would enter an agreement. You want to build a home for, for yourself. So we enter into an agreement where we're going to be the general contractor. So we'll do all the work from the permitting and helping with the design and architectural drawings and engineering and civil works and all anything that's required to get that house built for you. Um, and and it's per it's custom because it's specifically for you. You you do this uh, this great. Um, podcasts so you know you have your, your your perfect space in the house that is set up for that for instance right that's customizing it for you or for your family so everybody every family has those things that are important for them um, maybe it's a place to hang the hockey gear so it doesn't smell the house up when you come home from playing hot, old, old timer hockey or whatever right so yeah. it's all it's all those are the customized things so you do it you, that's what it is and then they just you um work out all those details before starting any kind of construction and, and what's it all going to be made out of other selections so that there's no surprises that you have certainty about what you're getting and what you're paying for it. And you're getting what you want, not just, not just that the, the price is right, but it's right as well as for your budget, as well as what you're getting for it and the materials and the size of it, you know, all these things. And then we have certainty about moving forward to that construction phase. Oh yeah. So the diff that's the difference between custom homes and spec homes. Right. Got it. Got it. And you mentioned, you know, the, the last decade home prices have been going up so much that a lot of spec builders per se, they're, they're jumping in and, you know, they can make a couple of mistakes, but they'd still come out of it uh, with a profit, you know, kind of what are the highs and lows of spec building? And do you think, you know, we've kind of reached kind of the, the peak where a lot of people are over right, leverage right now, if they're spec building and there are a lot of issues there, do you see that happening or, um, yeah, take me through kind of your thoughts about the, the highs and lows in spec building. Well, I think spec building is always going to be there, whether it's done by, let's say, uh, people in the business that make a living from it, potentially a builder that builds spec houses or a developer that builds, that's finances and coordinates spec building. And it could be houses and houses of suites. It could be multifamily. It could be commercial, whatever, as long as it's built speculatively to resell. <clears throat> um, and there's some very good spec builders and there's, there's and large ones. And then there's medium sized ones and really small ones. And, you know, the neighbor down the street kind of doing it. So um, I don't think that's ever going to change. It just goes through its cycles. So when property prices are escalating, driving the, the cost up month over month, year over year, um, it's like the fear of missing out. It just seems like a good opportunity to make some money. Um, so lots of people get into it at that time. Uh, as the market softens or things happen and, and the price drops, then those people that were leveraged, over leveraged in terms of borrowed money, they're out, out of the game really fast because they can't afford to maintain those payments while there's no revenue. Um, so whatever, you know, reserves of cash they have get chewed up in that and they get out of the get, get out of the that speculative building. Meanwhile, those other uh, developers that have deeper um, you know liquid cash assets are are able to pick up some of these distressed properties and hold them and you know two or three years down the road really just do the same thing but they're they're able to hold a, a um, 
an inventory of, of property for that purpose. So I think the, um, the danger is for uh, people that are just looking at it as it seems like an easy way to make some money, you know, because it's, it's more than just leveraging money. It's, it's understanding where you are in, a, in that sort of cycle. Can you build and get out of it in the next two years? year and a half before, you know, before market changes. And that's kind of, that's speculating because you can make your best estimates, but it's not always correct. Um, and there's also cost, you know, just controlling your costs and cost overruns, but that's where some of the housing with problems shows up as well in terms of uh, leaking or just poor quality construction because it's done faster, done uh, with labor that's not completely qualified because it's cheaper labor. You know, so those kind of issues start to show up there. That'd be a challenge. The other thing to remember, I think, for anybody listening, is that to build a house, even even if it's speculative, you do have to provide a warranty, um, which is required by the government, um, and it's called a two five ten warranty. And it's, so the ten years is on um, foundation, building structure related stuff, and it works its way back. But you, uh, you know, whoever's building those those homes has that liability to for that period of time, and you indemnify. Um, the insurance company approved by the government. So if there's any problems, you're on the hook to um, to pay for that repair. So you, you need to have good confidence that you know what you're doing and you're doing it well to protect not only the people that are buying it from you, but yourself as well. Got it, David. And uh, you know, from that first property that you kind of put the two pieces together, um, and you built that 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 first home of yours. Um, how did you transition to become the regional manager of Allaire Homes? Well, funny enough, it was um, it was actually through what we're talking about because as I built my company, it was I I was spec building, so I build nicer homes on the higher end of things, but they were still spec building, and that probably 80 percent was speculation. More than that, actually, as it grew, and with some customs here and there for clients. And we would do you know five or six houses at a time kind of thing. Uh, but I grew that through leverage and borrowing money and having and building small apartment buildings and com with commercial units and holding property for larger and larger projects. Um, you know, 120 units with um, hotels and just all kinds of stuff that just kept on growing. Um, and what I described was was also my story as as I grew all that. It was it was growing aggressively using borrowed money, and coming into um, 2006 2007, uh, I was over leveraged. The market softened, and I found myself paying the mortgage payments with the money that I had previously made, and eventually lost control of the properties. and And, uh, and then 2008, of course, 2009, market issues hit. Uh, so that was kind of the, uh, that spelled the end of, you know, 10 or 15 years of spec building and building that company up. So ironically, in uh, 2009, I, part, of, part, of that, part of that, those holdings I had was on Vancouver Island. <clears throat> and uh, so ironically, I ended up working as a general manager for a company called Allaire in the Nanaimo, um, on Vancouver Island, uh, and so I, I joined uh, Blair. It was just a small company, another builder, you know, at the time. But interestingly, the model was was, was different, and it was the, the 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 sort of the kernels of what we're doing now. So 
while 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 that whole uh, construction economy was was caving, especially in the states and and to some different degrees here uh, through 2008 2010, Alara grew pretty aggressively, uh, revenue and profit based over in, in those years, and uh, and so that, anyway, that's how I that's how I came to work with with Alara. But we had uh, the the owner of Alara, uh, his name is Blair. Um, just had had approached this in 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 a sort of the opposite of what I was doing, where it was just custom building, uh, and developed the identified all these problems that we mentioned and and more, and piece by piece figured out what is a process, what needs to be in place so that doesn't happen, uh, and the clients are better protected and we're better protected, and that eventually came into a model that could be duplicated because we realized and that. In, in our business, you can't really franchise or, or, or duplicate the house building itself because it's too physical and there's too many differences from region to region and those kind of things. But the business model behind it that allows this sense of this um, real security uh, certainty for clients and for ourselves is duplicatable. Um, but it actually takes a, a larger group with specialized knowledge um, and some world-class systems in place to be able to do it. So that comes from grouping a bunch of builders together that can offload those back office services um, and create a structure, you know, business model where where have that support um, and and team around us so that we can continue doing what we are good at, which is building. So that's that's kind of how that started. Um, and in 2012. Uh, I moved to Vancouver and, and as to develop the region here for Allaire, uh, which is now a franchise across Canada and the United States. That's amazing, David. And you know, it, it really feels like, uh, again, just by bringing together a lot of quality builders and making a system in place um, to be able to allow builders to leverage that, where you know they focus on what they're good at. Uh, other than that, you know, what what is uh, the, the difference of Lair Homes? Well, good. I think there's I think there's two different there's a there's if the answer to that is different depending who we're applying it to. Lair is really making a big difference to builders, and also then that group of builders in Lair Homes is making a big difference to customers. So, and they're two different things. So maybe let me address them both. Uh, let me start with the builder side. So, so most builders have, um, or as we discussed, small business owners, and they they might be great at building a house, but usually they're not that great at doing their accounting or doing their bookkeeping or are understanding the difference between cash on hand and quick ratios and whether GST is mixed in their funds and if, do they have enough funds that they collected from the client, you know, all, all those things, uh, as well as best practices and systems, right? It's all about sort of the process. Um, and how do you, how do you maintain and deliver good expectations and communication with the client? All of that takes systematic methodical processes that need to have their systems. So, uh, Alara has built its own software and all of that to, to support that, which you can't, it's too expensive to do as an independent person, so it never gets done. So therefore you end up building something for somebody as an independent, and there's always this risk inherent in it because those systems aren't really in place. Um, and usually, you know, if the 
owner gets too much going or is distracted or gets sick or whatever, then uh, things start to fall apart because there's no backup. There's no sort of plan B for that business. In a structure like a lair where it's franchised, all those systems are in place, all the backups, all the audits, all the, you know, so it's, it's all there. So there's a lot more security for, for everybody. So for a, for a builder, the difference is, is that as they go through their career building houses, at the end of their career, they're, they usually have a business that they can't sell. It's Joe's construction and Joe's going, retiring or going out doing something else. That business isn't very saleable. Whereas with um, Alaire Homes, as they transition their old business to their new business, which they own as Alaire, then that business becomes saleable because there's the, the, the brand value continues on uh, once they leave. So they, all the work they put into it, there's more value for them. And what we're finding, what we're hearing from everybody is that their quality of life is better because now they're not doing the things that they don't like to do or that they have to do and not great at and not having enough time in the day and they're working long hours trying to get, you know, run the business because so much of that is supported by the Alaire team. They have a better quality of life and actually can even duplicate with multiple offices because it's, that's the, the, the franchise system allows them to be able to do that. So they can actually grow their businesses in ways they couldn't do before and it becomes saleable. So financially, it's just a way better business model, a smarter business model for uh, for builders. Um, it's not for everybody, but for, for those that it is, it's amazing. Uh, for clients, for, for people that are looking to build a home, the I think the what's what's what we're observing, what's really interesting is that it really just creates it, it creates this really amazing combination of Here's a local builder that has a local reputation, is in the community and lives there and is, is a great builder. He's still a great builder, but now he's part of this larger team that creates and delivers a lot of stability and certainty about the outcome that they're gonna have, not only in the well-built home, but also in what was the process like getting from the beginning to the end? Was it great and awesome or was it a horror story? And it, everything is stacked in the favor of being great and awesome because of those systems and processes in place and you know it's easy to talk about transparency and where your money is going and those kind of things but it's a bit tricky because it's one of those things that's easy to talk about and actually a little hard to do and you can't really do it unless you have really stringent rigid and math processes in place that are auditable that need to be done that create that protection that outcome for the clients and i don't know and i've I don't know of another um, business in our industry that can deliver that besides the lair. And part of it has to do with the intention, but part of it has to do with the size of, of, of the group. Like we currently have 125 builders or so as part of a lair. So that collective uh, financial capacity that those builders bring allows us to put all those things together uh, and then have special, you know, like world-class experts doing that as part of our team. And so for us, for our client's experience, it's easy, it's seamless, it's online, it's, you don't even think about all that's behind it to make that happen, but it's there. So um, they're getting uh, more of a trusted, uh, um, you know, just, just, a, that, that just a more reliable. Um, Transparent. Yeah, I was gonna say luxury, but it's not luxury from the point of view of costing more, but it's more like the, um, uh, just that high quality experience that, that you'd want. Like most people, like when you're building a home, it's not $50 you buy, you're spending on, on something. 
uh, you know, it's hundreds of thousands, it's millions of dollars. So it's really important to get it right. And uh, that you're entrusting that whole process and that money and the outcome with a company that has the highest probability of getting it right and delivering and protecting your investment. So that's, that's part of what, what, what we deliver. I think interestingly, John, from a business point of view, there's in, in house building, there is no big brand currently. Like, you know, in real estate, there's, there's a several large, large brands. Um, and, you know, Sutton and Remax and, and others uh, in, in construction, there isn't the guy that's well known in one neighborhood is, is completely unknown in another neighborhood or across town because there's some other guy that's well known over there and, you know, but they're all like small. So you get a bunch of those guys that are well known that are doing good work, combining together in something like a lair where we can share all that structure. Then that becomes a, a brand that people get to know and trust. And that's, that's uh, you know, part of that consolidation of the right kind of builders that Alara is bringing together. And that's really the, a lot of the power of it. That's wonderful, uh, David. <laughs> Um, yeah, so, um, you know, we've talked a lot about your journey. We've talked a lot about um, being a builder, things to watch out for, differences between spec home and a custom home, and the, the amazing difference that Alair Homes is making. Um, to wrap things up here, I'm curious to, to hear kind of what your take on the future is uh, with, with, I guess, building um, and real estate, just to get your two cents on that. <laughs> sure. Uh, well, from the building side, the, the, the future is pretty cool. Uh, and many people sort of know, but all that British Columbia has, has legislation in place to make all new homes energy neutral by 2032. And Vancouver has that accelerated that to 2025, which is really only, of course, five years from now. <clears throat> what that really means is that the, the net energy used by the home is zero. Uh, what's interesting about that is is how that gets, it's an energy, it's a measurement of energy rather than it's not a dictation on how to get there. So it's being left to the industry to develop new materials, new methods of construction, new design elements, um, or even, even energy sources, just the whole combination that achieves these goals. And they're called step, you know, um, they're, they're, there's a step process where each year there's another level of energy require energy efficiency requirement needed to accomplish those goals. And if you if you can't demonstrate uh, as you're building as you're planning to build a home, you have to be able to demonstrate that the home is going to actually achieve that level of energy efficiency in the year that we're building, or you can't even get a building permit. And then it needs to be tested to confirm that it's actually factual once you build it. So it's it's very real. So I, so that's. The outcome for, for people listening is, is that's is this cool because as we go into the future, um, there's going to be less and less homes that are cold and warm, you know, through the season that are getting moldy, that are having bad air. Uh, lots of folk, you know, families that we come where we do renovations and things, the kids have asthma or they just, you know, they're, they're not always health, as healthy as they want to be. And it, a lot of it is honestly just completely house driven because the way the house is designed, it doesn't create the healthy atmosphere uh, or the energy efficiency, which are tied together. Uh, so we'll have healthier homes as we go forward. 
that are less burdensome on our on our planet in terms of energy use as well as as pollution creating there like the new you know as as everybody's know you know i should say everybody most people are aware of uh the you know energy storage in terms of batteries now and may kind of be made a lot more popular by electric vehicles and tesla and companies like that and it's almost like the new uh you know the new diesel polluting kind of uh you know thing is was was the vehicles uh and still is of course but now it's sort of shifting to well that maybe that's the that's the uh, gas-fired furnace and hot water tank in our houses now that are doing the same sort of thing right so there's a there's a movement towards changing those things and all of that becomes more cost effective as we move forward in technology development and uh, rights law uh, which is sort of a cousin of Moore's law where it's like that as as the production of any product doubles the cost of that unit production goes down so for us that means that we can buy uh, say you know solar roofs that look nice and battery packs for less money than it costs to put a furnace in that's not true right now but because of rights law each year you can you can track how that's coming down coming down at some point it becomes the same and then it actually gets cheaper to do to do that that alternate form of energy right and that's happening not just in that category but lots of different categories that we use to build houses with on all, all the different components so i think that you know in terms of a future thing on the technology side, I think that's pretty exciting. It's going to be across the board to everybody's benefit. So the sort of the abundance and quality of life for all of us improves with time as it as it goes forward in terms of the houses that we get to build and the homes that we get to build. Um, that's amazing. Yeah. Wonderful, David. Uh, and that's a very exciting feature um, that lays ahead with building homes and definitely being net net zero. Um, that was the first time I've heard about that too. So that's, that's cool to know that uh, we're pushing to, to be a more eco-friendly city um, and a healthier city as well. Um, mm -hmm. Last but not least, David, uh, how can people get in touch with you or reach out to you if they have more questions about building a home or a lair homes? Um, where can people contact you? Well, you can contact, contact, you can just, I mean, go online, you can Google a lair homes. A-L-A-I-R homes and you'll see all the offices across BC. Uh, I, if you choose Vancouver, that'll come to me uh, or email me, david at alairhomes.com. Wonderful. Thanks again, David, for your time and being on our podcast today. That was fun. Thanks, John. Absolutely. You take care and uh, we'll talk soon. All right. Bye for now. You're listening to the On The Rise podcast, the podcast for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs as we make our way to the top. Here is your host, known as the property shark, Mr. John Lee.